In the wake of the Pine Mountain incident, the Herald leaders had a slew of op-eds talking about how Eastern Kentucky must come together to gather and unite to fight for all of us. But if they are fighting for everyone, then who are they actually fighting? New Democrat attack ads go after Cameron for asking able-bodied Kentuckians to work. Then finally, I'll go over not what I did to upset the left last week, but how I actually managed to upset quite a few people on the right last week. I'll go over why today on the Andrew Kubrider Show. But before we get into it, please make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe. Uh, as always, I ask that you uh, please uh, share this with everybody you can. Hit the share button if you're on Facebook, comment. Uh, hit the like button, whatever you can to help spread the word. And as always, if you're listening to this on the podcasting platform, please make sure you leave a review. And if you're listening to this, of course, and I know you guys get tired of hearing it, but if you're listening to this in a video format on Twitter or YouTube or Facebook, and you are unable to leave that open while you're going around and you want to be able to take the show on the go, feel free to go ahead and listen at any major podcasting platform. Just simply search for Andrew Cooperider. Uh, you should be able to find me on any of your favorite platforms, such as iHeart, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, uh, Pandora, Google, and many, many more. But however, without further uh, ado or delay, let's go ahead and dig into it. So over the last few weeks, the Herald Leader has run several articles from far-left activists and sympathizers calling for Eastern Kentucky to unite together. Why? Well, because there was this Pine Mountain incident. I did an episode on this called uh, The Pine Mountain Incident. Uh, should have been, I think, last week. So it should be pretty easy for y'all to find. But a quick summary is a leftist activist group uh, came in and defiled a 110-year-old pseudo-public church and protesters showed up and asked them to leave. Following this, we saw many, many opinion pieces published, such as uh, following that incident, talking about Pine Mountain, which um, an example of this would be Pine Mountain shows shifting culture of fear, Anger is hard, but we try. Or Pine Mountain Fraca shows rural Kentuckians must fight for each other and not against. And most recently, about five days ago, the Herald Leader published uh, an article, an op-ed called Appalachia is home to all kinds of people. We must unite to fight for all of us. But if everyone is uniting, well, who are we fighting? Perhaps if we dig into this most recent article, it can tell us. Now, the author of this article is a Cara Ellis, the leader of Pikeville Pride. And she starts off by telling us how she wasn't really proud to be from the Appalachians and was happy to run away because of her lack of opportunities and sexuality. She felt that she wasn't accepted or represented enough. I guess at the time, the lack of parades or festivals dedicated to whom she wanted to sleep with was just too much for old Cara to handle. And so she left, left town, but now she's back because, well, I mean, if you want to be treated like everybody else, um, you of course want to throw parades and festivals dedicated to you because that is what they talk about. When we hear these people say, well, we don't feel accepted and celebrated enough or belonged enough or represented enough. What they're saying is, is, well, we just feel ostracized because people don't bother to care enough about who we sleep with. 
So Cara comes back. She forms Pikeville Pride. And now she says she is a proud gay Appalachian. But she feels pushback from her community. She feels pushback and a lack of belonging. But perhaps this pushback she is experiencing has nothing to do with her being gay. Perhaps it has to do with the demands that she and all these activist pride groups make on the community, not to just be accepted, but demands that they can take your money, your resources, your kids, and use them to fulfill their own needs to be worshipped like minor deities in a sexuality-based religion. Now, I'm not going to just make some baseless claims. I think we need to take a look at what her group, Pikeville Pride, has done and she has done to see if perhaps we could figure out why maybe there's some strife between her and her community. Here's a uh, great example of what we can expect from Pikeville Pride. This is from, of course, their website right there on their homepage from one of their events. And for those of you not looking, what you'll see is a bearded man uh, dressed in um, nunny women attire with a habit. Uh, this person is a member of a group called um, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Uh, we've talked about them before on the show, but the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence is an anti-Christian drag group who dresses up as sexualized nuns, men who dress up as sexualized nuns in order to mock the Christian faith. Now, if your quest here is to simply be respected and accepted into a community, especially community dominated by the Christian religion, perhaps you shouldn't be making fun of that area's main faith. Perhaps you shouldn't feature drag performers whose entire stated purpose, and like I said, in a prior episode, I went over who they are and went through their website, whose entire stated purpose is to celebrate oneself while mocking Christians for believing in something other than themselves. Perhaps when you take such a disrespectful stance towards others' beliefs, you shouldn't be so shocked when the community gives you pushback and resistance. But at least you think maybe this is the only thing they have done in order to, um, you know, create some alienation with the community. Perhaps the pushback has to come with your use of public funds uh, in order to expose children to pornographic performances. You see, coming at the end of this month, um, this group is putting on a uh, performance at the Appalachian uh, Arena Plaza. And I'm going to show you a video of this performer here. Um, I do want to issue a trigger warning to all those who uh, have recently eaten. Um, try to maintain your composure. All right, that's enough of that. Oh, <laughs> that video is actually much longer. Um, it's it's about, I only showed you about a third. I just, uh, that's enough. Um, so anyway, so there, for those of you who weren't looking, you're seeing a rather large guy. I'm a big guy. Um, so I can say this, you're seeing a rather fat guy uh, dressed in, of course, women's clothes, uh, sexualized attire, um, proceeding to twerk and pop lock and drop it and so on and so forth. That performer there at the end of this month, as I said, is coming to the Appalachia Arena Plaza. Now, the Appalachian Arena Plaza is owned by the Commonwealth of Kentucky. 
So therefore, our tax dollars. And it's operated by the city of Pikeville. Once again, taxpayer-funded entity. And that area that this so-called performance, I'll call it pornography, is taking place is outside of the main arena. It's outside at the outside plaza. So not only is it owned by the taxpayers, the area you're using, but you're bringing this to a public space and area where small children and people who just live in the area uh, may be forced to endure and exposed to. You know, perhaps if you want to unite and come together, you shouldn't be hosting sexual performances at outside taxpayer-funded areas in the middle of downtown. Just a thought of how you might try and belong to a community. I mean, this is nothing more than a performance that centers around your sexual proclivities. And while I don't necessarily care what you do in your own private bedroom, obviously a community does care about what you do in public. That is when, especially when you're using taxpayer-funded entities, you're inviting them to have an opinion because you're using their resources and you are using their money. Now, of course, she goes on to claim that the goal in her endeavors is to actively redefine the narrative of rural America from hostile too hospitable. Now, what's so funny about this is that's quite the opposite of the rural Southern American narrative for much of our history. It's almost as if like they don't know about something called Southern hospitality, a thing that was often and quite often talked about. But that's not what they care about. You see, what she's talking about when it comes to hostility is hostility towards her specific viewpoints hostility towards leftist viewpoints. See, this uh, um, narrative she's talking about, that's not a narrative that exists in general public culture. That is a narrative that exclusively exists in leftist ideas and leftist viewpoints. And when she's talking about this hostility towards her viewpoints, this includes hostility towards things like her making fun of Christians, stealing your money and spending it on her sexual fetishes, using taxpayer funds to expose children uh, and the community to pornographic performances, which I guess uh, just simply is saying, no, I don't want my money and community resources spent on those items. I don't want my children exposed to those types of images. She considers us simply saying no to be hostile. She goes on to say that this so-called rhetoric that is cooked up in, of course, her mind and the minds of only far-left crazy people has shaped the far-right political rhetoric coming out of far-right political groups who've adopted it to recruit members of our community attempting to further create division based upon race, class, religion, gender, and sexual identity. So they come along and they say, hey, you're all racist because we say so. And if you say you're not, that's just proof you're racist. But of course, she claims that this is creating people pushing back on her claiming everybody is racist is uh, what's shaping this rhetoric to create division on race. And she comes in and says, you're all poor. You shouldn't hate rich. You should hate rich people, but only the ones we say you should hate. I mean, if they've made millions and have a lake house by being in government, you know, getting rich off the back of the taxpayers, like somebody, I don't know, named Bernie Sanders. Well, those people, that's not the rich people you should hate. But yet she claims it is us 
create division on class. They say that if your religion stops you from celebrating us and endorsing our lifestyle because you believe it is sin, well, you're wrong and a bigot. And it's not enough you just tolerate us. You must accept us with all of your life beliefs. And yet, despite the fact they're the ones making the demands, she claims that we're creating division on religion. They say you've all been raising your children wrong by treating boys like boys and girls like girls. And oh, by the way, I want to make sure you are aware of who I sleep with. And if you think it's weird, I insist on telling you about it. Well, then you're just hateful. But of course, despite the fact that is what she says, it is us who've created the division on gender and sexual identity. You can't come into a community and say that all of you, all of you have to follow me. You can't have the audacity say it's just far right rhetoric causing division. And that so that far right rhetoric you're hating is literally the belief system of the entire area for literally almost since their ancestors settled there. And now you're coming in and calling them the hateful ones. Then you're shocked that you get pushback from these people. Then, of course, Kara points to the Pine Mountain incident where the Waymakers desecrating a 110-year-old church with paganistic and Hindu religious symbols are surprised. They're surprised that in that instance, the community was upset about it. She points to that as evidence of the far-right hate. But really, it just supports the argument I'm making, that they are the hateful ones. You are the ones literally coming into an area, demanding they change their entire belief system, not just so you're tolerated, but so that way they follow your beliefs and you demand that they create a culture that celebrates you and your sexual proclivities constantly, hang up our rainbow flag or else you're a bigot. Let us desecrate your church or your bigot. Let us use your money to put on sexual performances in public areas and expose it to children or you are a bigot. Let us make fun of your entire religion and culture or you are a bigot. And then she ends this article by saying, we must unite to fight for all of us. Well, who are you uniting to fight? You certainly aren't fighting for all of us when you're only wanting us to acquiesce to fighting for your worldview and none other. You know, if you want unity, you want people to come together under an idea, how about this? Leave each other alone. Literally, live your life with no parades, no public sexual demonstrations, no demands on other people's children, time, beliefs, or lifestyles. Just live your life and stop caring that everyone knows who you sleep with. When you do that, you might just find out that that Southern hospitality certainly still exists because nobody is actually trying to attack you. We want nothing from each other, but we all give what we can to those who are in need. That's what Southern hospitality means. But instead, you want to redefine everything, demand everything from everyone, and then wonder why you get so much pushback from it. Well, coming up, I'll go over a new Democrat attack ad in the governor's election. We'll have more right after this short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So a pack supporting Annie Bashir has recently started airing this ad. Daniel Cameron says it's one of the first things I will do as governor. Bringing back former Governor Matt Bevin's ruthless Medicaid plan, threatening to take away coverage from over 95,000 Kentuckians, punishing working parents, putting rural hospitals in danger of shutting down. This sounds very similar to something that Governor Matt Bevin tried. Well, absolutely. Denying people coverage, devastating rural health care. Something that Governor Matt Bevin tried. Well, absolutely. Cameron's absolutely wrong for Kentucky. All right, so anybody who watches that ad, um, any slightly thinking human being, I, which I hope is probably more people than exist, but anyways, any slightly thinking human would be suspicious right away of this ad. And why? Because at the beginning, it starts off with Cameron saying, one of my first acts as governor, and then it cuts to a narrator. Let me play that for you again here. Daniel Cameron says it's one of the first things I will do as governor. Bringing back former governor Matt Bevins. That is, um, well, should raise an eyebrow, right? Hopefully it raises the eyebrow of anyone who's paying attention slightly because you could literally take somebody saying one of the first things is governor and then put in anything. You didn't let him finish his statement before he got to the money shot, before he said the words, you cut to a narrator, like I said, you could do that with almost anything. And so obviously the hope would be is that voters look at that and they're like, okay, this seems a little trickery. Um, now, of course, the reason why they cut away from Cameron's full quote was because it doesn't do super great um, to play into the role they're trying to make with this ad, or at least the narrative they're trying to make with this ad. Because here's the full quote. One of the first things I'll do as governor is make sure, as it relates to able bodies, individuals, make sure that we apply for a waiver with CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. That's a federal government group. To make able-bodied participants coverage contingent on work requirements here in the Commonwealth. Now, a lot of mumbo jumbo might be there, but let me explain what he's saying. What he's saying is that, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, Medicare and Medicaid, but specifically here we're talking about Medicaid because Medicare, of course, is a retirement uh, type program or an elderly type program. So clearly that wouldn't be able-bodied participants. But Medicaid, um, he's saying that, hey, look, you shouldn't get the outright welfare benefit of Medicaid. Now, I do want to under, I, I, I want to explain myself for a second here. I do not look at Medicare the same way I look at Medicaid. Medicare, 
you have paid into your entire life when you've been working. They've taken that money from you and they're supposed to be putting it into a trust. So that way, as you get elderly, uh, they can pay for, you can pay for your medical bills. Essentially, the government said, look, we've got a lot of people that are old and infirm and we can't trust you to manage your own money. Therefore, we're going to take a chunk of your paycheck. We're going to put it into this account to then give out to you when you've become of age. And when you look at, uh, I, I look at Social Security the same way. I look at uh, Medicare because of that tax you've paid into it. And when you look at the expenses compared to what you pay into it, and then you compare that to even a privatized type investment system, you have paid in more than enough money. Most people, like the vast, vast majority of people have paid in more than enough money into Medicare and into Social Security that the government should have the money to give you the benefits that they promise. Um, that is your money that was then taken by the government and invested. The problem is the government doesn't invest it well. Obviously, one of the number one things they do is they buy bonds with it, which do not have the same rate of returns that privatized investments do. So obviously, that can be a big part of the problem. But anyways, um, so what he's saying there is that, look, if you're able body and you're just choosing not to work, and understand that's able body, not that you're disabled or infirm or elderly or so on, but you are physically able to work and choosing not to, well, we don't want the taxpayers to foot the bill for your life choices. And I think every individual that works especially should agree with that. I mean, Cameron is talking about welfare reform so we don't keep paying people to stay home. This is something we actually know resonates with many voters. And we can come to that conclusion based upon the success of Oliver Anthony's Richmond North of Richmond, which in part is summarizing the complete BS that people like you and me, we work, we pay 30 to 40% in taxes while others stay home and leech off our backs. People who can work but choose not to. That is part of what Richmond, North of Richmond is talking about. Now, he isn't just talking about benefit reform in that song. What he's talking about is exactly the kind of BS that this ad is pulling. What Oliver Anthony is speaking about is this idea that these politicians, they take money from us hardworking people, and then they redistribute the wealth and use it to buy votes. Uh, you know, when Anthony says, your dollar <laughs> uh, ain't, you know, uh, crap and it's taxed to no end. We are taxed to no end because we have to pay for these services. Not only are we paying for the Medicare and Medicaid of these people, but when you have able-bodied people not working, that means your states and your communities, your counties and your cities have got to tax the people who are working even more. Because the state, the, your state, your counties, your cities, they still have to provide. I'm not even talking about the state. The state tax is too much. Let's talk about your counties and your cities. Um, and I'm not talking about your big cities like Lexington and Louisville who just waste a lot of money. I'm talking about these struggling rural counties in Kentucky. They're forced. They are forced to tax those who are working more whether that's in property tax, whether that's in occupational tax, uh, what, whatever that may be, general licensing fees, whatever that may be, because they have got to provide services, fire, police, roads, to people who are not working and contributing, and they only have a so big of a tax base to pull from it in order to do that. And so it ruins your local communities. It makes it to where you have to be taxed more locally. But meanwhile, the federal government who's going into massive amounts of debt 
is the one financing this. So it's destroying your local communities that these people aren't working because they don't have a tax base to pull from, which means they can only pull from you. It's coming out of your pocket. The other thing this does, encouraging people, quote unquote, to not work, is it creates uh, what I call regional inflation. I guess that is an official term, regional inflation. And it causes services to leave your town. What do I mean? Well, if a, if a service comes to town, if a business comes to town, uh, they're obviously opening up, they're looking for workers. Well, if they don't have workers to pick from, and right now in Kentucky, there are two job openings for every solitary job seeker. There are twice as many jobs as we have people looking for jobs. So community, so these businesses come into a community, they're looking for workers, they can't find them. They have two choices. They can either pack up and leave, which means that those who work, uh, that would spend money at these businesses and even those who don't, but those who work, I'm talking about how this affects the working Kentuckian and retired Kentuckian too. Those who work, now have less places to spend their money, less services in their area. Maybe now you have to drive farther for a grocery store or basic needs and services. Or what these businesses have to do is they have to pay more in order to compete with the other businesses in the area, possibly pull workers from another business. Now that business closes down, but in that competition for workers, so these businesses can stay open, they pay more and more money but they still have the same amount of labor pool to pull from. So everything goes up in expense because they have to offset that additional cost of labor somewhere. And that means the people who are working now have to pay more and more and more for basic services and uh, entertainment, food, those kinds of things. And it, it, I guess it's also the, the people not working, but of course, you know, when it comes to food, they have food stamps, uh, they stay at home, they've got maybe Section 8 housing to pay for their housing, um, welfare benefits there. So, so it really doesn't affect them, but it certainly affects those who are retired as well in the area. Things cost more, their retirements are worth less because of it, because of inflation, and it's putting everything into turmoil. And what Cameron is doing here, I think most working people would agree with. He's saying, look, I am trying to do what I can to get able-bodied Kentuckians back to work. This is something that I think a lot of us should support. But of course, this ad is attempting to make you hate the idea. You remember from the ad, they say, that this is going to potentially put 95,000 hardworking Kentuckians off Medicaid. Uh, <laughs> Medicaid. The question would be, is that 95,000 hardworking Kentuckians? Because we're not talking about the working poor here either. He's saying a work requirement. This doesn't mean we take away your healthcare coverage. This means that we are requiring you to work in order to receive healthcare coverage. So this isn't going to cost people, the working poor, the people who are working very hard, but are struggling to make it because the cost of everything is so expensive, including health insurance. This isn't who we're talking about. We're talking about the people not working. And according to this ad, there's 95,000 of them in Kentucky. If they're saying that this plan would kick 95,000 people off insurance, then what they're actually saying is that we have 95,000 Kentuckians who are able body, remember a requirement, able body, they're able to work but are choosing not to do so and are requiring taxpayer-funded programs in order to finance the lifestyle that they are choosing. Not that they're forced into, but they are choosing. 
So, of course, what these ads are hoping for is that those 95,000 people, one, they're hoping that the working poor, the people who are on Medicaid but are working, will be concerned about losing their health care coverage and go vote for Bashir, even though that isn't what's in the works with this plan at all. And they know that. But then also as well, hoping that these 95,000 people go out and vote for Bashir so he continues their listless, lazy gravy train. And so he rewards them for their choices to freeload. And this is exactly why government should have never gotten so big, because we now have politicians that literally bribe people with our tax dollars to vote for them something that every single Republican politician should recognize and call out and then work to shrinking the size of government. That is assuming there are, of course, actually small government Republicans, but alas, most are not. And I understand most engage in the exact same BS tactics, and it's literally destroying our economy, state, and country. But regardless, we got to stop stealing people's money, stop redistributing wealth, it's extremely morally corrupt, and it's leading to the demise of our country, of our state, of our communities. And these types of ads have got to be called out for the fact that they are trying to say that you, the voter, should not vote for Cameron because people are freeloading off your hard work, and you should continue to let them do that. They're trying to convince you to vote against your own best interests in this case. Now, coming up, I'll go over exactly what I did to not upset the left, but what I actually did to upset the moderate right in our state right after this short break. So over the last week or so, the Herald leaders actually quoted me in two different articles. Actually, in one of the quotes, they called me a semi-celebrity, which um, I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know what you have to do to become full celebrity, and I don't know how I'm a semi-celebrity, but, um, you know, <laughs> I've, I've never been called anything close to a celebrity before. So that was an interesting moment. But anyway, so they quoted me in two different articles and my quotes, surprise, surprise, upset the moderate right. Now this podcast and many things I say upset the quote unquote moderate right and they're, they're really liberal Republicans quite often. And so what did I say this time? What did I say in these articles that ups, upset these people so much? Well, first I was quoted in an article about Mitch McConnell freezing up. And in this article, I was quoted as saying, these are accurate quotes, by the way, it's obvious to me that McConnell is not mentally there. I understand the politics of being concerned about who ends up replacing you, but at the end of the day, I'd rather have somebody competent in office than somebody not. At the risk of sounding crass, it's like having somebody order food for us that won't be here when the check arrives, which is, you know, that at the risk of sounding crass, it probably was pretty crass. Now, the pushback I've received on my statement is twofold. And one is that McConnell is fine, of course. You're crazy. McConnell's fine. In fact, in the same article, hopeful McConnell replacement and former Kentucky Secretary of State, Trey Grayson, said that maybe McConnell's just pushed himself a little too hard. But that doesn't mean he can't be the leader of the conference. They're talking about, of course, the minority leader. I think it's really important that he be the leader because I'm not sure who else can navigate the politics of the next few months and preventing an unnecessary shutdown while at the same time making sure that the government spends less money, which is an important priority of the party. I know I want him in the room navigating all that, and I still think he's capable of doing it. So let me deal with these sentiments 
Honestly, McConnell is the last person I want in charge of budget negotiations right now. And perhaps it's because of McConnell's mental lapses, but when we look at his last budget negotiation, he completely forgot he was a Republican, something he seems to be doing more and more often. And what he did was he greenlit the Democrats' $1.7 trillion federal budget, and he could have stopped it. And then the Republicans were coming into the House. They would have been in charge of making that next budget. But instead, he rushed through the $1.7 trillion Democrat budget. Why did he pass the Democrat budget? Because he didn't trust the conservative arm of the Republican Party in the House. He knows that they will at least try to reduce spending. And that fight might have meant a government shutdown. Our country is literally hurtling to a fiscal cliff due to debt and inflation. And this guy cares more about a few week government shutdown, not just McConnell, but Trey Grayson as well. He cares more about, oh, government shutdown. That's so awful. Meanwhile, inflation's out the wazoo. Spending's not under control. But the thing he's most worried about is a government shutdown, while the rest of us are concerned with our country literally falling apart. And that is the way the Republicans as a whole feel out there. That's what polls and general sentiment says time and time again. They want Republicans who will stand strong now to protect our country, regardless of the cost, because we're concerned about what's around the next corner. Additionally, he's fallen silent twice during press conferences within the last, within a month or so of each other. How often is he now doing that in private? In budget negotiations, does he fall silent while Democrats run amok in the room? I've heard that he does. Let me put it to you this way. If your financial planner was acting this way. Would you trust him with your money? So why are we trusting McConnell with trillions of our tax dollars? Now, the next point I was told was that if, well, if McConnell steps down with Bashir in office, then we may get a Democrat. First, this does nothing to negate that McConnell should step down from at least being the minority leader. He would no longer be, of course, in charge of the budget talks. Um, and so that doesn't negate that. But let's talk about the point. Let's talk about the second point that we may get a Democrat. First, there was a new law passed in 2021 that McConnell pushed for right after he was reelected because McConnell knew he wasn't healthy and ran anyways. He's a selfish guy. He decided he needed to stay in power. I mean, Trump was on the ballot. Literally any Republican that came out of that primary would have uh, uh, been elected, guaranteed. Uh, the state went like 60%, some over 60% for Trump. It's like guaranteed that that senator, whoever it would have been that would have replaced McConnell, would have won. Like, it, like guaranteed. But he ran anyways, knowing he was not healthy and well. That's why he put the law in place in the first place. And what the law says is that Bashir must appoint from a pool of three Republicans that the Republican Party of Kentucky puts forward because he is replacing a sitting Republican. It was sitting Democrat, then the uh, uh, Kentucky Democrat Party would put people forward. Now, of course, Bashir would challenge this new law in court, and the question becomes, did Republicans craft a good law or not? And if they didn't, the question is why? Why didn't you craft a better law? Was there no other avenues to go, or was it that you didn't want to somehow leave it up to powers you couldn't control to decide which Republican was picked? Because you needed to make sure. See, that's the thing. This thing about picking the three, what that ensures is that McConnell can handpick his successor, or at least handpick three successors, possible successors, and then the governor would have to choose from them. 
And the second thing on this point, the second point, the second thing on the second point, <laughs> how can we hold that Joe Biden, Feinstein, Fetterman all need to step down while not holding ourselves to the same standard? All four of them, McConnell, Feinstein, Fetterman, Biden, they should all go for the same reason. They are not mentally there. They're not mentally well enough, physically well enough to continue to fulfill the duties of the office, period. However, this corruption that's around them and is feeding off their power continues to hoist them up and work them like a marionette puppet, a power regime that needs to be broken anyways. So while I understand why you may be upset at me for saying McConnell needs to step down, running the risk of a Democrat replacing him, you cannot argue with me that at least he needs to step down as minority leader at the bare minimum because he is quite clearly the last person we'd need there. But that wasn't the only thing I did to upset the left. I mean, that got, to, or not the left, sorry, oh, Freudian slip, the, the moderate right, the liberal right. That's not what I did to upset. And that's not the only thing I did to upset them. They were already grumbling, but then this came out. So the second thing I did here uh, was I issued a statement of uncertainty when it comes to Cameron. Here's what I said. I said, I think Cameron bringing on Carmack was a huge mistake. So this was in a Herald Leader article, a second one. I think Cameron bringing on Carmack was a huge mistake. I think that if Cameron loses, that specific decision will be the number one reason why. Because all during the primary, he tried to distance uh, himself from McConnell, and now he brings in McConnell's chief of staff in a key campaign role. So let me explain. Terry McCarmack is McConnell's chief of staff who is now on loan and is running to the Cameron campaign is running a large part of the campaign. Additionally, as well, you've got Scott Jennings, the former political director for McConnell. And I'm told, and I've had this confirmed from a few people, he is essentially running what would be Cameron's transition team. Basically, if you want to be a part of the Cameron's cabinet, then you must go through Scott Jennings. This rears up some concerns that the conservative Liberty and Trump base will not have any people, let alone a person in the Cameron administration. And instead, we'll get a Cameron administration that will essentially be the McConnell show, or at least, of course, the people who surround McConnell will now surround Cameron and the same destructive policies and lack of conservative values we see from McConnell will now see out of the Cameron administration. And this is certainly a concern because we don't want to continue with these tax, big tax and spend policies of establishment and Republicans, but that is what we will continue to get. And, you know, the, the, the concern here, so they don't want me to say anything. These people, they don't want to say anything. They want happy talking. They just want happy talking. They just want to ignore it because, and, and I get it. I get why you don't want any voices of any kind of dissent because Cameron has to bring together Republicans, but telling people who are voicing concerns to just hush up and get in line isn't going to be how you bring people together and win. First, you don't unite a group of people by not listening. You want to get all the Republicans on the same page and pushing in the same direction? Then we all must feel that we have a seat at the table and all of our considerations are being heard. When you say just be quiet, well, that is guaranteeing you that not only are you not going to get all Republicans together, but it does nothing to stop the thoughts. And also you can hate the feedback I give on Republican political campaigns, but me being quiet does nothing to change voters' minds. You see, my voice just represents a sect of voters. I don't know how many people feel like me, think like me, and act like me, but I know it's not exactly zero, and I know it's a little more than that. 
And I know this because my opinions and viewpoints aren't just shaped by me. I talk to tons of people all across the state, and this is the concerns that I'm hearing. When I'm talking to you about the Cameron campaign, possibly not doing well on this, not messaging well on this, when I'm talking to you about the Cameron campaign involving too many McConnell staffers and it's driving away voters, this isn't just pure speculation on my part. This is literally things I am aware of as I talk to pollsters and political insiders all across the state. And when you need every vote you can get, then not knowing what sizable sects of the voters are thinking because you refuse to hear them and you insulate yourself and you don't want them to speak up, that is a death sentence to a campaign. Now, let me be clear. When I'm talking about who I upset it, it's not like Cameron himself told me to be quiet, but it's more people in that political orbit. For all I know, the concerns that I expressed and others have voice. I'm not the only one talking about this, obviously. Others have voice, have been heard, and maybe there's some changes that they're going to come to show that they're listening, to show people have a seat at the table, and to bring together the Republican Party. Because understand this, I want Bashir to lose. However, what I do is provide commentary from a viewpoint, a viewpoint held by many people. I'm not going to censor what I say in order to pretend everything is hunky-dory and nothing is wrong when so clearly isn't, because that isn't how we make a change. That isn't how we make a difference. We've been quiet as an entire population for so long as conservatives. We've been quiet for so long, and then we're surprised to see our country and our state in this direction. And for those of you who disagree with my viewpoints, I get it. I don't expect 100% agreement with everyone. I've said that on the show before. But my viewpoints come from the experience of a business owner who got tired of being messed with by all these political forces and decided I needed to get involved. This means I want real tangible change. And I really hope that Cameron and the Republicans in Kentucky can deliver it. But I'm not going to be quiet and holding people accountable until that happens. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. I thank y'all so, so much for joining me. I hope you have a great rest of your day. We'll see you back here tomorrow at one o'clock. We'll see you then.